2: Behind the Proser. I'm back. It is season two of Behind the Pros, and I just want to thank you for returning on the other side of the summer. I had to think about what was going on with the show and whether or not I was going to continue to do it. I wrote all about it on a blog post at behindtheprose.com, so go check it out and you'll be in the loop about what's going on, but we're here. I'm back, and I say we this time because I really do mean we. Uh, We have uh, two interns here from my job where I work, and one of them you will meet today. Her name is Sarah Lorish. She is a writer, and she is going to be an associate producer this semester. She's going to interview some of the writers that we're talking to this season, and today she starts off the season by interviewing Liz Prior about her new memoir, Look at You Now. So I really enjoyed working with her on this interview. I think she did a really great job and I'm pretty sure you'll think that too once you stick around and listen to it. As for the check-in, let's still do the check-in because it works. Chunks of 20, remember I've been telling you I'm writing in chunks of 20 and I think 20 gets me two acceptances And I've been talking to you about that for the last year, and I decided to figure out if there was any merit to that. So I pitched the idea to the Writer magazine several months ago, and they were interested in it. So I ended up writing an article for them about the science of submission, and they actually published it in their September issue, And the article actually became the cover story of the magazine. So that's really awesome. And I'm honored that that happened. And I hope that you can check out the article and see some of our past guests in there. Chelsea Clamor is um, in the, the article as well. You know, the submission queen. She's in the article and a couple other people that you don't know, but you may not know, but you'll be introduced to. So. I'm still doing my chunks of twenty. I'm on ten, and out of that ten, I've already had two acceptances, so I pretty much feel like I just have to plow through the next ten because I know that I should expect ten nos, so don't like get my hopes up um so that's where I'm at with that right now, but of course, the semester started, and it's crazy, so I'm still trying to squeeze in some writing time, but I think when you listen to Liz Pryor, she kind of inspired me. Have you ever heard of binge writing? So she's going to tell you about it. And I feel like that's probably what I'm going to need to do um, to get through with squeezing writing in while you're working crazy hours. (laughs) Our debut, season debut episode features Liz Pryor. She is an author. She's authored two books. She is an advice columnist, a life advice guru. She's been featured on television and radio. And uh, if you go to her website, lizpryor.com, that's L-I-Z-P-R-Y-O-R, you will be able to learn all about her. But why don't you start with learning about how she crafted a very compelling young adult memoir called Look at You Now. I sat down with her at the library at my school, along with Sarah Lorish, our associate producer intern for the semester. So sit back, relax, uh, get a cup of a coffee or tea or wine if you prefer, and uh, listen to Liz Breyer.
0: Now, I... When I want to tell you a little bit about Liz Pryor. If you look at her website, I my first thought was pretty much brand marketing beast, like her <laughs> whole, um, Definitely. Would, you, would you agree?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Everything is super uniform. Um, you can get like a really good feel for who Liz is just by looking right on the front page. hmm
0: So she's an author, she's a speaker, parenting columnist, a life advice expert. Um, Her book that we're going to talk about today, Look at You Now, is a memoir, and it is her second book. Her first book was What Did I Do Wrong? And it was about the deterioration or the mysterious deterioration of friendships, women's friendships, and I can relate to that because I had a friendship that dissolved mysteriously, and I wrote about it for full-grown people. You guys might remember that from season one, So, uh, but today we're going to talk to her about her book, uh, Look at You Now. Um, she also, if you go to her website, you can find out everything that you want to know about her. She won uh, ABC's Good Morning America Life Advice Guru competition. Um, she beat out 15,000 people. And so she's had her writing um, and her life advice in numerous, numerous places. So we are happy to have with us today Liz Pryor. Welcome, Liz.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This is this is wonderful.
0: So um, we're going to get started today, and I'm going to let Sarah lead off with uh, one of our first questions.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, So, Liz, if you could just go through your writing process, um, generally, you know, where do you write, how long does it take you, um, just sort of that kind of thing.
3: I love that question, Sarah. I just spoke at um, UCLA to um, a writing program, and it was just so interesting, the questions that the students had. I am slightly unconventional, which probably all writers would say, because there is no one way to do this. Um, It's just your way, but you have to figure your way out. Uh, The first book I wrote, I had three young children, and I was a stay-at-home mom. So I think it really created some some great writer habits for me, because there could be no such thing as writer block, because all I could do was write in the spaces of time that I had to write. So in my head, it was never, ooh, how am I going to – it was, oh, hurry up and do it, because this is the only amount of time I have to do it. And I think that that – Schedule sort of created the kind of writer that I became even when my children got older. I write in my office at home. I don't schedule writing. I end I'm, I'm what I call a binge writer. <laughs> <laughs> if I sit down to roll and I start rolling, I really will stay in my pajamas all day if it happens. And I look up at the clock and it's 10 hours later. Um, I write every day. And it doesn't feel like a hardcore task to me i I love doing it. You know what I know about writing is that writing is thinking and rereading so and I know this when my kids were little and they would disturb me, they would say, "But you weren't typing." and I would say, "Well, the typing is the good part it's when i and I have certain habits where I walk out to my patio, and you know I don't get on the phone, I just sit and I think. So I basically am a person who doesn't um, – I don't – I have to be – I have to remind myself to take the breaks. Uh, when I wrote my memoir, obviously this was – I wasn't having to come up with a fictionalized idea. So I knew the story ahead of time. I am not a big outliner. Um, I'm, they're, they're very fastidious, you know, right-brained writers who tell themselves they're going to write from 9 to 12, and then they're going to write from 3 to 6. Um, I've never worked like that. I, for the memoir, I, I had to decide how long a, a period of time did I want the book to go. I knew where to start, but I had no idea where I was going to end. I mean, I and I ended up writing an entire book over the course of a five and a half month period of time. So, meaning, the book only takes place for five and a half months, which is. Pretty unusual. Typically, memoirs go many, many, many years. So the only tough decision I had was exactly where to end my book. It starts out, you know, at the beginning of my sem- um, second semester senior year in high school, and it goes through to the high school graduation, and that's it. Right. Does that answer your question, Sarah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, how? So, how did you decide where you were going to start and end it? Um, I did. I was interested in knowing uh, why did you pick, you know, driving to the facility as your start point and using, um, you know, when you found out you were pregnant and um, just putting the backstory story in as kind of like flashbacks. What made you decide to do that?
3: Yeah. Um, I kind of knew that one of the biggest points I wanted to make as a writer about the book was the disparity between, the affluent, privileged upbringing that I had in juxtaposition mm-hmm. with the underprivileged facility that I ended up in. And I kind of knew okay. the only way to do that would be to retrospect. So basically for the readers who haven't read it, you know, I start out in in um, now time. I, I decided to start driving to the facility when I realized that I could inform the reader throughout the story if I retrospected back on my privileged life rather than trying to create the privileged life first. Gotcha. Um, And in my heart, I've lived a lot of life. I have three grown children now. I I felt pretty strongly that it would end when this experience ended because I really wanted this one experience that – and your listeners don't know this, but this is a story that I lived for 38 years of my life without ever telling a single soul. So the writing of the book was sort of the opening of the story to everybody I love, everybody I know, and the world. And I really figured I would want to end that story when that experience ended, whether it be when my child was born or when I walked through the graduation. So I I chose the ending because I thought... I thought it was the most poignant.
1: Right. Okay, and that's sort of when you had to st- stop hiding from everybody also.
3: Exactly. I mean, you oh. know, if you, Sorry, if you have a beginning, if you have a beginning, a middle and an ending, that is something you have to have before you decide to write a book. Um so it really was before the writing that I contemplated this ending because that's that's what I feel if you have a voice and you have a beginning a middle and an ending uh you can write a story and this to me was quite a story so it was just a matter of you know and then my agent weighed in and my editor weighed in and I decided that emotional and psychological full circle would be if I waited till the reader could see me come back go through the motions of going through the graduation and then be stopped at what would happen to the rest of my life and frankly when the book when the galley came out there was a lot of feedback that people really wanted more information they wanted to know how i made it and did i survive and what happened to my relationship with my mother and so random house ended up putting a questionnaire together so that I could answer some of the questions so many of the test readers had, and we put the afterword in.
2: I didn't know that galleys were sent to test readers. Is that a common practice?
3: Oh, yeah. Um, yes, you get your galley made, and they send it to all the reviewers and, um, you know, libraries and all sorts of people. And then, yes, it's pretty standard practice to look at the feedback. Um, mm-hmm. And the one thing you know, you always want to pay close attention to is, does your reader feel satiated? And there were some pretty general questions that would be easy to be answered. Because um, the other thing I knew about this memoir was the only way to tell the story with the impact that it needed to have would be in the first person through the eyes of my 17-year-old self. So the whole book is written, you know, through through my eyes at 17. And it it, it ended up feeling like the reader wanted to hear from the grown-up Liz, you know, a page and a half of how, not how I survived, but just certain questions, you know, I don't want to be a spoiler alert person, but certain questions that, that needed to be answered, that the consensus was. in that They don't really send it out as a test read and say, how do you like it? But when the galley gets published and it goes out and you start getting feedback, that is a time that you can weigh in and add or take out something.
1: Um, okay. Well, I was wondering, um, you talk about holding on to this story for so many years. Um, it had to be scary deciding to expose your soul in a story that was kept hidden from everybody that was close to you. Um, I just wanted to know what compelled you to go ahead and try to publish. How did you decide that this is a story that needed to be told?
3: Yeah, I, you know, there's like a few answers to that. One is that, you know, I, I have three children who came of age to, you know, have boyfriends and girlfriends and sex and love. And when I was talking to my kids independently, each of them, when they came to the age where I wanted to talk to them about sex and protection and being smart and being responsible, particularly in this culture of hookup chaos, I suddenly realized that um, another message that I really wanted to send my children, so it started very personal that I really didn't want to perpetuate the notion of sweeping something under the rug and telling a child to carry a secret forever because if it were exposed, their life would somehow not be worthy, which is some of the messaging that my parents gave me. If I just never told anybody this story, that my life would be fine and it wouldn't be ruined. I wanted to sort of show the children that whatever happens to you in life, However difficult it is, whatever adversity you go through, whatever choices you've made where you wish you would have made a different choice, that there really is a way to get through it. There is really a way to own it and stand behind it. And I thought, what better way for me to model to my children that you can stand behind something than telling them this story and then, of course, asking their permission to see how they would feel if I could tell the world the story. because. I'm just positive that there are a lot of people out there who are living with some version of an untold truth. And I'm writing an essay right now about uh, the two sides of living with an untold truth. You know, it's a very lonely place to be. To to imagine and believe that you're the only one who really knows the truth as to why you are the person you are today is is incredibly lonely. But on the other side of it, I think I was forced at a really young age to navigate the inside of who I am and reckon things with myself, forgive myself, work through the shame all alone. And in that, built this enormous amount of strength that I clearly have used throughout the rest of my life. So I sort of hoped if I told this story in the compassionate, unjudgmental truthful way that it happened to me as a 17-year-old, that it might help inspire people to know that the truth, and if you can stand behind it, not not only sets you free, but can inspire other people to own themselves and be more truthful in their own lives.
0: So speaking of truth, at the beginning of the book, you have a disclaimer that you say that many of the characters are composite. And I know that there's a school school of thought in nonfiction that would shy away from using composite characters. Can you explain your decision to do that, and like where you fall in the line of thinking there?
3: Yes, in fact, um, that is really a legal coverage for things that have happened in the past with memoir. Um, it's also a way to protect yourself and others from mostly defamation. Um, it does say that it could be composites. I mean, the story is as it happened and as I remembered it. But, you know, 38 years later, I think legally speaking, one could argue how you remember things. So I think really that's the now the standard memoir composite. I felt really strongly about protecting many people in this story. So it was my idea to maintain my name and my family's name, but that everybody else who was involved in this, which were several underprivileged girls, the social worker, the doctor, um, everybody else in the story. You know, I I sort of felt as an author that they didn't decide to write this book. I did. So I wanted to um, change their names, and I changed the state in which this happened. And, And all of that boiled down to my strong feelings about protecting this baby, who I gave up for... Adoption in a closed adoption. This was not my sort of public attempt to find a child. Um, it was really my attempt to share a story about adversity and overcoming hardship. So I felt really strongly about not putting identifying names and places in the book because it was sort of superfluous to the point of the story, in my opinion.
1: Okay. Um, In the book, you use a lot of um, vivid uh, physical descriptions to distinguish the characters, you know, uh, with the boils and then Deanna with the red earrings and um, Tilly with toothpick legs. Um, I was just wondering how you chose uh, which features um, you would brand each character with. Did it come to you, you know, while you were writing? Um, Did you keep a journal while you were there? Like, how did you... How did you remember everything so well as to paint such Yeah, a, that's, that's,
3: that's a really impression. good question because there's some sort of... I was interviewed by some high-end psychologist in a podcast recently. There's something um, extraordinary about never, ever having told a story. Now, there were a few mm-hmm. people that I told I had a baby. But until I wrote this book, I had never spoken or written the words of the experience And there is a preservation, a psychological preservation that happens. And I think the longer you go, the more preserved – it's like it's preserved in amber in there. These were – the things I wrote were the things that I remembered. I didn't have to fudge my brain. Now, sometimes what would happen, for instance, when one of the girls lost her baby, um, I would write on a a legal pad, you know, in order – the highlighted things that I knew I wanted to put in this book – and then it was like the, it was like a dam that would burst. I would start to put myself in the lounge, and everything came back to me, um, vividly. Colors, you know, quilts, floor tiles, the smell of the food. Um, so all I can say is about the ability to remember is we don't mean to, but as we tell stories over time, we don't mean to change them in our heads, but it just happens. So when you don't tell a story, it doesn't change, and it really it really sits in there like some of your biggest memories from childhood. I don't know why we remember the more difficult more than we remember the easy, lovely ones, but it's very much like, um, you know, the first time you you ever learned to ride a bike and you fell and you smacked your head. You know, that's something that a kid would remember. This is sort of the same sort of psychological memory. Um And I never found myself struggling to recall anything. In fact, I had to stop it a little bit and pull it in and focus on, you know, the main part of the story as other things would come in that I remembered so vividly.
1: Wow, that's incredible that the memory was preserved so vividly. Um, I mean, for me, I have to write everything down in a journal, uh, but I write like the bare-bone facts, and you mentioned when you – we're trying to write it, uh, you wrote, you know, important events that you, you definitely wanted to include and then sort of fleshed them out as the memory came back to you. Um, yeah, so if no I, if I sort
3: doing? of outlined it in chapter form and in order, right, you know, so when right. I arrived and, and then, you know, the big sort of events, it was the little events and the details that came as I would write the big events. And, and earnestly there was no struggle With any of the memory now, I do have a reputation in the world, in my family, in my friends, in my kids, that I do have an insanely specific memory. I will tell stories of something that happened to us as kids. I'm one of seven kids, and I will remember things that nobody else remembered. My boyfriend thinks it's because I've never been a big drinker and I never did drugs. (laughs) He's—it's a very curious thing that I do have a pretty specific visual memory.
0: Mm-hmm. And actually, one of those parts that you're referring to, I marked, and this is uh, so, guys, I'm reading this on my Kindle. You know, I was messing around with Nook last a season, and now I've converted to Kindle, and I have it marked here. One of those points is uh, it, the sign had a large, this is when you're talking about driving up to Gwendolyn House, which is where you stayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sign had a large crucifix on it with a dented Jesus lying sad and suffering, and that just kind of hit me there, and so I guess that's kind of the details Sarah's talking about, is Definitely. that right? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, well, imagine, you know, you don't know where you're going. Your mother hasn't told you a thing. I remember the billboards of, of the last few billboards when we were driving as though it was yesterday, and, you know, obviously when you give birth to a child and you're a child, There's just so much visceral, psychological, and then physical memory and fear. You know, fear forces you to remember so much more than you like, as we all know.
1: And it's just so funny because uh, in the book, uh, Liz is trying to forget it. You know, she's hoping that this will all go away and she'll start life normally again. And it's just so ironic how everything is just burned into your memory.
3: Of course, yes. It, you know, I think I knew and I think I tried to get across that, that I was never going to forget the girls. I was never going to forget the baby. But mostly it was the the soulful transformation that was made, the, the opening of, of life on the other side of the world. What had gone on in that facility, you know, were things I saw on television I really was unaware at 17 that there were kids all over the country whose parents don't take care of them and love them and know where they are and kick them out for getting pregnant and leave them in juvie, and it was just the most insane educational experience that that really moved my soul. It tweaked me to the left for the rest of my life, so it wasn't just being away from home and having a baby. It was... What I learned about people and the world and life and my and my faith in God, there were such massive life transforming experiences to to that one five and a half month period of time in my life.
1: All right. And that really comes through, I, especially for me, uh, as Liz is narrating, I felt you know the gradual evolution of her and the hardening. Of her um, that sort of comes to a peak for me Um, I don't know if you can uh, speak on this but when she answers a question for the first time she's in a a conversation with one of the girls and she says fuck and you've never heard her swear before uh, you know a little bit in her in her own um, internal dialogue but out loud she just it just comes out and um, I was wondering if that's is that your intentional turning point for Liz Um, because you can definitely tell that it's coming to a peak, something's happening, and like you said, it was uh, a major education. Um, How did you decide to communicate that transition?
3: That's interesting. Um, I remember actually writing that and feeling that. um, I think it was the natural evolution of the transformation process, and that was sort of the beauty of this book, that it was so truthful and so honest that so many things I've been asked about that were not intentional in any way. It was just the truth of the story came out. Right. I, mm-hmm. I, do I do remember another moment, very much like that moment. I remember, remember hesitating and writing the fuck, um, in that <laughs> scene. I also remember very vividly, there's a scene where I'm in the social worker's office with my mother And the social worker is commending my mother. I'm a month or two from having the baby. And she tells my mom that I have made, you know, this big impact on these girls, and we've all become friends. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to compliment the person that I am to my mother. But my mother is just so convinced that she doesn't want to hear anything. Do you remember the scene? And she stands up and says, Liz is not here to help people yeah. and make bonds, she's here to have this baby and get out. It's like she just cannot handle it in that scene, and I remember it vividly. I stayed seated. She got up to leave and sort of let this woman know that that we were not, you know, there for this. But I stayed sitting, and she said, "Come on," and I got up and I hugged the social worker and I asked her who else was thinking about. I I, I felt like that scene. Was the transformational autonomy of me from my mother, in other words, my mother thinks there's certain things, and for the first time, I was feeling like, well, I have thoughts too. I'm not leaving right now, and I'm going to acknowledge the kindness that this lady just showed you. Do you remember that scene? Yep,
1: yeah, yep, yeah.
3: mhm. That felt pivotal for the character to me, kind of like the fuck was pivotal earlier. Um, the Dorothy scene being a little bigger for the listeners, you know. I did. I I I was I was brought to a you know a government-run facility that was locked and underprivileged. You know, kids that were um, on leave from juvie because they were pregnant. Very very different kinds of kids than I was, and I do think my parents had a, had a. You know, everyone asks me. You know, couldn't your mom have found an easier place for you to be? And I always say the answer to that is, earnestly, I think my mother was doing the best she could. I think she had a little bit of the cross your fingers and hope she makes it through this. But time was, well, you know, I was four and a half months pregnant, and the hiding me felt critical. And I think once we both got to this locked facility, I think she was absolutely shocked at what it was really going to be for me. Even though they gave me a pass and I could leave, she was pretty aware that it was going to be a difficult process. So I do think she did the best she could. I also think that she was nervous that if she had to pull me out that she would have to answer to my father, who had already accused her of being responsible for me being
1: pregnant. Right. And Dorothy is such a interesting, dynamic character. Um, I yeah. can only imagine it must have been so difficult writing about your parents from the point of view of a seventeen year old knowing that it could very well conjure you know negative connotations, especially in the first half. Dorothy seems so uh close minded at first, and then you know gradually start giving her some redeeming um, encounters that you know at least for me had me warming up to her um but she goes through almost as big of a change as Liz it feels like um. And I was just wondering, you know what judgment calls did you make uh, in how to present her as a character?
3: Yeah, you know i I don't think I could have written the book if I didn't love and like my mother as much as I did. I have so much respect for her, and we were so very, very close i you know i I felt very strongly about there's so much that people don't like to talk about that people don't hit in life because it's just it's just uncomfortable, right. The, the, the global hope for the Dorothy character was that um, you could see throughout the book, which was very difficult for me. I, I give advice for a living. I, I get paid to weigh in. And I wrote an entire book and didn't weigh in on a single thing. I just reported. And, you know, I, I, I love my mother. I loved her, and I trusted her. Were some of the decisions questionable? No doubt. But what I really wanted people to feel when they read this book was that my mother unquestionably loved me and did do the best she could and was a wonderful, full, you know, eccentric, dynamic character who was flawed, just like the rest of us, very flawed. Um, I, I can't think of a person on the planet who we wouldn't say has flaws. And I hoped that I could create the character who she was which was insanely loving and giving and open and free and then wildly limited by her own upbringing and her culture. So hopefully the reader got what I got because once I passed Dorothy and I became, a, you know, my own person, I had to accept her for who she was. She was raised a Catholic in that bubble that I was living in. She did the best she could, and, and I, I noticed – The natural story was when she would behave in a way that would make a reader cringe and me cringe, she always redeemed herself. When she told me to cover my pregnant Mm -hmm. stomach in the restaurant, you know, it was just like her to then turn around and say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I did that. Mm -hmm. And that's human and real. And I hoped that people would identify with the fact that we all try our best to do the best we can, but we're flawed.
1: Right. And I think that, that absolutely comes through. And the fact that, uh, Liz, you can clearly respect her. Um, and you, you just report and, uh, she doesn't defend her mom. And all you're doing is writing about, um, how sort of unapologetically passionate she is about what she's passionate about. And that is human. And it did come across and just give her, like I said, a lot of dynamic. Um, I just thought that was awesome. Um, yeah, that's it's an interesting
3: character to identify mm-hmm. with. So interesting the juxtaposition of Random House is now, you know, Good Housekeeping put the book out as one of the top crossover summer books, meaning young adult readers and adults, right? And the difference between what adults get out of this story and what young adults get is is amazing. So now we're gonna do book clubs where I've put a discussion guide together and you can hear what young people get out of this book what what sticks with them when they finish reading and it is polar opposite almost like it's a different book than what sticks with the parents so this dorothy character you know all the mothers who are reading are ident- are identifying or not identifying things about themselves that they relate to with dorothy and the kids are identifying and not identifying with a 17-year-old really interesting to me
0: Uh, One of the points that you share, and it's a flashback about with Dorothy and her parenting, she leaves, uh, she forgets to pick you up at school and you're sitting on the steps. Um, Can you tell Just lost my train of thought. Where was I going, Sarah? Do you know? What are
1: you talking
0: about? Oh, oh, Dorothy's parenting. I know you noted that in your notes about the Catholic steps.
1: yeah. you know i had a couple of questions with that just um i mean i know you introduced these i don't know if this is where is going no, or not don't but don't worry about it just uh, go anywhere <laughs> okay well I, I noticed that you introduced almost what felt to me like an ocd tick maybe um uh, i don't know if it was a defense mechanism because she was so nervous or upset that her her mom isn't dropping uh isn't picking her up but you know she's like Is she counting something? She's like, you hear like click, 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 and like tick, tick. She's like messing with her clothes or something like that. Um, Yeah, when I was a little girl, like at nine years old. Yep. Yep. Oh, you mean my mother uh, in the car? uh, You uh, you go back and you're talking about when, when she left you at CCD. And, um, yeah, no, I
3: I didn't see that as an introduction of OCD at all. I saw it as, you know, a little girl trying to, you know, fill the hours, the three hours her mother okay. was late to pick her up.
1: Okay. Okay, yeah, to me I totally just thought that was going to reappear uh, in Liz later in life as a 17-year-old, maybe when she's in another difficult situation. I totally uh, just sort of saw that coming back into mm-hmm. play. So that's interesting that it wasn't intentional.
3: No, it was just a uh, – all the memories of the things that I was doing to make sure that, you know, and the whole narrative of maybe I could just live here like a little kid thinks, you know, maybe I'm never going to go home. I was trying to, um, you know, just let everybody know what the narrative in my head was and how I would fill the time and what I would do and what's the future. And, I, you know, I remember trying to really make sure that you knew how young I was. You know, i look up at the top of the bell's which is very far for me because I'm just a little kid. That was, right. um, a, 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 yeah, a hard-worked-on scene. But, no, it wasn't an intentional OCD anything. It was just the mind of a little girl.
1: Okay. Um, if we could just backtrack a little bit and talk about um, a couple of the characters, Tilly especially was a, an incredibly strong character for me, Um, And like we talked about your use of composite characters. I was wondering if she was real. um, Is she one person or a mix? Um, Oh, no, she's one person. And in reality, she is. Okay. Did you have uh, the most meaningful relationship with her? Definitely felt that way. Yes.
3: Yes, the most meaningful lasting, yes. Um, And, of course, no, I never had contact with any of the girls again because it was pretty – pretty hardcore that my parents did not want me to carry on any sort of continued relationship sort of when the doors to the facility closed, the doors to all their lives and everything about them closed.
0: Can you talk to us a little bit about your revision process? How long, well, I mean, before we even get to the revision process, how long did the manuscript take you to complete? Um, And did you have an agent at that time or did you sell it on a, this is many questions. Sure, I get it. That's
3: that's an interesting (laughs) process. So when I decided to write this book, obviously it was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made, and I sort of knew at the base of me that this was going to be very tumultuous for my family. Um, You know, it's a very hard, deep, dark, difficult story that none of my siblings knew, and not even my parents knew what I went through when I was in there. They didn't want to know. And nobody ever asked me, and I I wasn't able to tell. So you can imagine the burden of deciding to do it, right? Um, And knowing that it would be an insanely difficult emotional process, I decided I would literally, I thought, okay, I'm just going to write one chapter, and I'm going to see how it feels, I'm going to see how it flows. And, you know, just a side note is in my mid-20s or late-20s, when I was living in Los Angeles, I'd just gotten engaged, and I didn't want to do the work I was doing, and, and my husband said, you know, why don't you go take a writing course? You know you want to write. just So I did take a, a couple you know, wonderful writing courses at, at UCLA, and thinking in the back of my mind, I might want to write this story. And I remember that the teacher you know, asked everybody, do they think they have a personal story that they could write in a memoir? And everybody raised their hand, and she said, whatever that story is, because everybody has one really good, you know, personal story. You know, my suggestion is that it not be your first book. And I remember feeling really angry and thinking, why would she say that? Why, you know, and basically she said that we were young And the further away you get from your stories and the more you write, the better you get. Now, I didn't take her literally. I wrote the friendship book because it just was a topic that came up and I wanted to write it. So cut to, you know, two years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to write a chapter. But there was so much more to this book than the writing of it. It was like, did I want to take it on emotionally? And did I want to put my family through what I knew it would do if I did it? And, um... I just sort of sat down in church one day, and I thought, okay, I am going to take all signs of barriers as that I shouldn't do this. And God knows, you know, when you go to do something and you're an artist of any form, there are going to be lots of hurdles that come up. And I thought, I'm just going to take, you know, if there are major hurdles that come up, it is the sign that I'm not supposed to write this book. So I wrote one chapter, and I called um, a friend I had made through the publishing of the other book. And I said, I need a memoir agent. And she laughed and said, Well, why? And I said, Because I think I'm going to write one. And she said, That's impossible. It's really hard. You have to have, you know, lots of components together. And I said, Can you just give me a memoir agent? And I'm going to contact her with your name, and I want to send her a chapter. So I did that, and the memoir agent called me back in one day, which is impossible in the writing world, and said, I really need to talk to you about the rest of the story, and I want you to know you need to continue writing it, and I'm sure I can sell it. So I looked up and thought, well, that wasn't a hurdle. (laughs) So I wrote three more chapters, and with the help of my agent, we put together – I was unwilling to write the entire book because um, I didn't have that kind of time in my life to not know if the book was going to sell so we put uh, – I wrote three more chapters, and then she helped me. The agent – you know, agents are, are incredibly helpful to the process of your book. Um, you know, my agent is an ex-editor, and most good agents have had experience working in publishing houses. So they sort of know exactly how much of the arc the publisher they, – they just know all of the things that there need to be known to sell your book. So we put um, sort of a proposal together, and I had this obvious platform so I could sell the book and um, where the book was going to go, and we took four chapters, or she did. She's in New York. I'm in L.A., and then they submit to all of the publishers or the editors at the publishing houses that they think will be interested, and the hope is you get um, um, several interests, and then you have a bidding war, and you sell your book. So I flew to New York. And I spent two days meeting editors at publishing houses, which is exactly how it went with my other book. And we had multiple interest, and then Random House made a call and came in with a preemptive offer, meaning let's not do a bidding war. We love this book. We'll offer her this much money, and the book sold. So. I waited for the hurdles and the signs to not tell this story, but it was as though the Red Sea parted and the story was supposed to be told. And that's really as I experienced it. Um, Did it make the emotional and psychological part of showing the book to my family and my close friends easier? No. But (laughs) it um, it was really validating and really confirming to know that, an editor, particularly this editor at this amazing publishing house, thought the story was so worth telling. And her point outs of the story were um, the compassion and love and trust with which the story was told. Um, we can all imagine somebody going through the experience that I had and coming out differently than I came out. And I think that was sort of the hook of the book. Um, and I would say that that six, seven weeks out of the book being out, that honesty is contagious and it is permeating. When you're truthful, uh, people don't even know how responsive they are to the raw truth. And I think that's really what held this book together so nicely. And the response, I I would credit all of the response to being that people detect um, false voices. So at the end of the day, my biggest advice to people who are writing is to be honest with yourself and be willing to stand behind the truth and really write it in the voice that is yours. That's the bottom line to me.
0: Um, Going back to that chapter that you said you wrote, I feel like that must have been an extremely, obviously powerful chapter for the agent to call you back the same day. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us if that chapter is in the book now in its entirety was it edited yep. down
3: it is in its in its entirety and it is chapter number one wow wow and i wow. would also I would also very much like to share with you that you know when you're a writer. It's so hard because you're so close to your work, and particularly when you're writing memoir because it's your personal story. So obviously your group of readers that you have that are your second eyes, which you have to have when you write, are critical to the process. And you want, you know, you always have your readers that think you're great and they don't know much and they say, I think it's wonderful. But you've got to pick your readers that are really going to be honest with you and say, I was confused here or I didn't understand this or it didn't feel compelling or there was too much expose. Um, I had a, a, a reader, a woman who'd written, you know, 20 books, who I was very close to, much older than me, and had always gone to her for all the articles I wrote for Yahoo anytime I got stuck she was a professional writer she'd been published 20 times she'd won awards and I sent her this first chapter before I gave it to that agent and um, she called me and she said I'm so sorry to tell you this but I don't want you to embarrass yourself you cannot open a book in a car You just can't do it. It is so cliche. You have to rethink. You have to pick a different beginning. And it crushed me. And my boyfriend, who is the one who convinced me to write this story in the first place, got really mad and said she's wrong, and this is a test for you as a writer, as a person who knows what she's doing. You you have to ignore that and send that chapter. I want to say that in case anybody is listening you have to remember as a writer at the end of the day you have to do what you feel is true to your voice and and I don't know why we do this but we think that people who've written 20 books and have won awards know more than we do they don't and you know the moral of the story is it was bought by an editor at random house and i opened it in a car
0: <laughs> mm. And just to give the listeners a little bit of background, actually one of the notes I took um, on my Kindle app here, I have a chapter one summary, I say, author establishes time, January 1979, narrator and mom drive to Gwendolyn house, which is where you were going to stay, significant backstory on family, character of mom, backstory ends when the present moment scene begins with Arrival at Gwendolyn House, and then we end day one. Um, and so I guess my first question is, I know as a writer, I struggle with where I think chapters should begin and end, and I know you said you don't outline. So when you were writing, and you said you binge right. So when you were writing that chapter, how did you know when it was going to end? Or explain that process to us.
3: Sure. Um, and here's what I would say to everybody about chapter breaks it doesn't matter. Chapter breaks really earnestly don't matter. As writers, we think we really think they do matter. But imagine if here's what I did with that first chapter. I wrote until that first section of me was out, and I didn't think very technically about it. I just knew um I wanted to get in, you know, I wanted to to describe Dorothy, myself, some of my background, and it was I really wanted to write um, tension. You know, I wanted there to be a bit of suspense. Where was she going and where is she? And, and as, you know, after writing two books, I would tell everybody that chapter breaks are the last thing that you need to think about. In fact, I know in my head for this book and for the last book, chapters are around 20-plus pages. Does that mean they have to be? Absolutely not. Um, chapter breaks are not something that I think the writer needs to focus on unless it's your process. And for me, I would feel spans of time. I would, I would sit down and I did write chapter at a time because that's how I do it. And there's, if you could just trust your natural flow, um, sometimes you can write and write and write and you don't feel the break and you have 40 pages. That's not something that you need to fret about because that's what agents and editors are helpful for. Your job is to stick with the truth, stick with your voice, make your point, um have a slight, you know, push that the chapters that you're writing are pushing the chapters that are going to come. But you can't, you know, it it's not of service to you to look at each chapter as a mini book. It's more that it's more the flow of your voice and where your story is going. And honestly, <clears throat> the editing process was extraordinarily light, meaning obviously it's a memoir, so we're not going to be changing plot lines and characters. But the editor's job often is to push the, the author in this case to go deeper. You know, with with an emotional story one can tend to to say, Well, this happened and this and sometimes you have to push yourself to say, How did I really feel? And am I, am I being honest with myself and my reader? Um, and then there's it's, it's beautiful to have an editor because if there are times in your book or your chapters where um, they don't think it's uh, – there will be times when you write things that are not necessary to the storyline, and then they can help you, you know, weave through them. But the editing process was so much lighter than I imagined – and it went chapter you know chapters at a time and they come back with notes and say hey did you also could you tell us i got a lot of editing notes of can you tell us what day it was what month it was how much time there was left till you had the baby and that was a difficult part of this story for me was remembering the exact timeline of all the experiences that i had stored in my head
1: um in editing, so you said it was a pretty light process, but uh were you forced to make any changes that you were uncomfortable with or went against your idea? Um not even kind. That, you know, not even
3: slightly. Okay.
1: No, absolutely not.
3: And I and I tell you I've talked to a lot of authors who have not both experiences for me, Simon and & Schuster and Random House. I never had I never had a difficult experience. Apparently, you know, lots of people do. And it can be terribly uncomfortable, but in the in the in the idea of a memoir, you guys can imagine how critical it would be to have um, a compassionate, understanding uh, person whom you basically entrust your baby to. For you know, both both true with my agent and my editors, uh, really kind, compassionate people. No judgment, no no switching. I mean, I've had experiences like that in article writing for magazines where they just change everything you just said to fit whatever format it is, and it's your personal story. That's, that's very difficult, but that did not happen here at all.
1: So
0: what type of advice would you give yourself if you could go back in time to before when you started writing this book? What have you learned through this process? Since you're the life advice guru, what advice would you give to yourself when you started writing this book?
3: Um, you know, um, I'm pretty old. I, I feel like I did follow, like the stuff I said about being true to your voice and being real. Something I learned in writing this book that I had forgotten from the last book is when you're a writer – There are several voices that we have. There are places, you know, we're good at writing. So sometimes I would find myself getting the words through an experience, and the words were nice, and the feeling was good, and and it felt okay. But um, I would advise myself to stay really connected to the voice that I'm writing in because I slip out all the time and it wouldn't really necessarily be something that a reader might notice but if you notice as a writer you could you can write the same thing two completely different ways and both are reasonable and readable and even possibly saleable but you have got to try and stick to the truth of your gut and the way that you talk and i can feel it when i'm writing along i just wrote an essay about shame over strength over shame and it was so challenging for me to to not um, not lecture but but not tell a story from a higher place and I think we all have it. We all have the higher place we come from and then the lower place and when you're in the lower place, you know that you're rolling, you know that it's true, you know that it's real, and when you get out of the lower place, it means that you're you're a little more challenged about what you're writing and you go a little bit higher. And what I really mean is, then you've written five pages, and you say that's crap, right? And then you have to come back down. So I would advise myself to to try and stick as honestly and and keep my work ethic to a place where I can push myself back down and come from the place that I want to come from.
1: Right. Um, going along with you know speaking from truth and speaking from the low place, um, a quote that. Really felt like it came from that place for me was uh, when you say, when you're talking to Mrs. Graham and you're saying, I miss home, Mrs. Graham. I want to go home. I really want to go home. I know I can't, but I feel it so much. Um, That just like really spoke directly to my soul. I was such a homesick kid. Uh, I had to go to camp every summer for gymnastics, and that line just takes me back to a time when I was just too young to elaborate further than uh, saying, I feel it so much. It's just like such an emotion packed line. Um, Do you remember writing it or actually saying it specifically?
3: I do remember writing it, um, and I remember saying it. And I remember when I was writing it, I was writing what I remembered saying, and I remember thinking, oh, that just sounds not enough, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's just so simple. It's just so simple. But there there right there is a test of the real voices. Do I make that sound better? Do I... And, and, you know, it's a lonely process to be a writer. And there's so much faith in yourself that you have to have and keep pushing yourself along with and keep cheerleading yourself. And you do have your comrades and your supporters. But at the end of the day, it does force you to rely, depend, and have faith in yourself and your voice.
0: We didn't ask you this, but do you have a special like writing place? Do you have a room, a chair? Do, what do you That's need a around cool, you crazy answer. Do you
3: type? I, I, I think it's um, it's it's crazy. I remember writing a best-selling author when I first wanted to write my friendship book, and I said I think I have something really important to say, and I love your book, and you've written a book, you know, not like the one I want to write, but you know, I love your work, and he used to write in his closet. I saw it on his website and he by the way this author Poe Bronson he was you know a complete stranger to me had written a book called what should i do with my life and it reminded me the of the tone and flavor of this book i was going to write what did i do wrong about female friendship and i just wrote him and said what do you think i should do i i've never written anything i think i have something important to say and he, and I told him everything, and he wrote back, you know, you do have something to say. I think you should start a website. Do it, and it was, you know, whatever, 15 years ago. Do it for twelve ninety nine a month, and get on there, these things that you're saying, because they're important. And it really was that website that he told me to, you know, that, that helped tremendously build this platform that I've been nurturing over the last decade, right? Um, and I remember thinking, that is so funky that his desk is in his closet, I write in my bedroom. I started out with my kids tiny, and I had this massive bedroom and this big, huge desk in it, and I had little kids. So I needed to be um, available. Like, I I didn't want to be in another part of the house, and I didn't want to be outside of the house because I had to be home, and I would have babysitters come and watch them, and I felt like I could hear everything. So it began that – I liked writing in my bedroom. Then when I got divorced and we moved, one of the critical elements was, and the realtor would say, well, this is a nice room for an office. And I would be like, I, I can't write in an office. I've never done that. <laughs> so, so I continue to have my desk and my desktop. I I don't write on my laptop. I write on a desktop. It, there's something also bizarrely physical to me that it has to be bigger and it has to be planted. So I have yet to write anything significant on a laptop. So I'm a desktop girl with a desk in her bedroom. And, and, you know, in the last five years, as my kids have grown up, and I, both two in college and one in high school, I could easily move myself into a room as an office in my house. But I, I don't know, it's superstitious maybe. <laughs>
0: That's a very interesting point about the desktop. I, I can see how you do feel somehow more writerly, like sitting at a full computer.
3: Yeah, yeah it feels um, very solid and grounded and planted to the point where, of course, I'm on a book tour right now. I travel with my laptop, and I never quite feel like I'm actually doing anything of any importance unless I'm sitting at my desk at that at that desktop. It's like... Grounded, rooted, and all the books have been written there, and the good articles, and the I don't know. So I, I'm i going to have to get over that if I decide to be some sort of gypsy and travel and write. <laughs> <Yes>. um,
0: <laughs> but that's oh, that's my process said about platform, and we talked a little bit about this at the very top of the show, and we. Talked about your website and everything that you're doing and you've mentioned platform as being um, something that is supporting the sale of your memoir and I know sometimes there are probably people who are listening now who don't necessarily have a large platform or may they not they don't have any platform at all. Um, Can you speak to a little bit about do you think it, people who might be discouraged hearing um, that you know the success that you've had and thinking that maybe some of it is attribute, attributed to the strong platform that you already have.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I have a lot to say about that. I I think um, first of all, it is much more unusual to have my situation as a writer. I mean, most writers are not TV-genic. They're not comfortable in front of people. They're writers for a reason. They're reclusive, they're quiet, and they want to do their thing. And that is a typical author, and if you're good, you get published, and they don't do a ton of publicity. They may do some book events. But because of the life that I've had, and the television exposure, and being on Good Morning America, and, and being a life advice expert, and being a speaker... As an author, um, I personally was able to incorporate this whole recipe, which is it, it feeds right into what I do. I mean, my line in life is to possibly inspire and impact people to be a better version of themselves and inspire them through what I write, how I say, what I live. My claim to fame is that I am absolutely one of my readers. I am not Katie Corrick. I don't have a staff of nannies and five Mercedes out in front of my house. I'm just a woman who's raised her three kids on her own, who's been able to figure out a way to get across what I want to say to people that might make a difference. So I, I, I maintain the relatability. And I think it's probably just good business to take whoever it is you are and make it work in the best way that you can. I would not recommend that an author who is a writer-writer try and create some sort of platform because if it's not natural, it's not natural. Now, this memoir was a a, a huge departure from my platform. Um, The advice, you know, ABC, when they hired me, to be their modern-day Dear Abby had no idea that I had lived through this story. In fact, I was nervous they were going to find out and not hire me. (laughs) Wow. So the memoir is a definite departure and hopefully adds the flawed human thing we were talking about to um, what I bring to the table. Um, My advice to people who want to write books is... (coughs) understand that you don't write books to get rich number one number two um, you really have to be passionate about what it is you want to say and then you have to stay committed to how you're going to say it um, there's tons of other, other avenues to take when you're a writer you know, there's tons of stuff online I think the problem for writers now is it's very difficult to make money you know, online because so much content is free now And then you have your whole world of Um, self-publishing. Do I think there's a single recipe to selling a book? It is extremely difficult to sell a book in New York City to a top publisher. And, you know, I get all day long. Hi, I'm a screenplay writer. Hi, I'm a, you know, I get all day long. I get questions about how to get published. I have a cousin trying to get a book published right now. Um, The number one thing to do, of course, is to get your stuff together and find an agent. Mm -hmm. And how you find an agent is that's the good news about the Internet. You know, they're very specific about their submission policies. Mm -hmm. If you know anybody, you know, this is where knowing people can really help, like in all other businesses. But if you know somebody that can say, all right, you can send this agent, Bill Smith, and say that I sent you. Boom, that's your first little door. And before you use that door, you have to make sure that everything you want to do is ready to go into the door. I would say, you know, lots of writers make the mistake of using the possibility of of a connection into a door, and they're not quite ready to to do it
0: you brought up uh, the statement that well you know if you're writing the book you're not doing it to get rich and on the show I've talked to a number of authors who have had advances that may be four figures or five figures to no figures (laughs) and so the first question is would you be willing to share with us a range of like perhaps what Random House bought your book for was it five figures, four figures six figures, ten
3: (laughs) yes it was in the six figures
0: whoa okay like i show right now because yeah. i don't know <laughs> what? <laughs> what what that's, insane. that's the highest i've had so far on the show that's a congratulations
1: yeah wow thank you what, um
0: what does that feel like well you know it was
3: probably um you know it was insane it was absolutely insane, and there wasn't any element of, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to finish the book. It was just, like I said, it was so validating and confirming. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, again, back to the the sitting down in church with God. It was so reaffirming that this was what I should do. I have three kids. I'm paying, you know, my, my own way through them through college. Um, I worked my heart out, and it was you know, enormous payoff for me. Hmm.
0: So on the other side of that, they buy the book and you you released, as you said, about I think six or seven weeks ago. And what are you looking at in terms of sales? Like, do you feel pressure from them to hit a certain amount and what that amount is? I've asked different well, publishers and th- agents think, and I got different answers for like what's a good, you know, sale um number, number of books sold out. Know, I think you
3: can you can pretty much I think I just I read a really interesting article somebody sent me the other day. Out of the two hundred and twenty thousand books that are published a year, four percent of them ever sell more than five thousand books. So here here's the deal with, with selling your book. Obviously. A publisher pays the amount of money to an author in advance that they think they can make money over and sell. So the pressure is not on me to sell the book. It's really on them. So, you know, there's only so much I can do to sell my book. But they have an entire marketing and publicity team, and they have the the power to go in and make me a priority title, which they did to make sure the book gets up on the um, front tables in the store, and there's so much about the book business that I didn't know oh, and have learned in the last 10 years. So in other words, look at it this way. If someone pays you $5,000 to write your book, you can be pretty much guaranteed. They don't intend to do an enormous amount of publicity to get their $5,000 back. All you have to do is sell you know, a, a, a low number of books, to, and then and then it's all on you if you want this thing to get out and really get there. So the advance is equal to the faith that the publishing company has that the book, that people will respond and buy this book. Hmm. So it's a it's a team effort once the book comes out in terms of the kinds of publicity. And every author in the world will tell you that their their publishing house did not put the kind of publicity behind their book that they needed in order to really sell it so you have an option you can you can say i'm going to pay for a publicist on top of your publicity team because i really want the exposure for my book um you have to cross your fingers a lot you know with this book there's there's some mass marketing opportunity the high schools in the country required high school reading for kids because my book covers sex ed bullying shame judgment um, there's a very sort of profound, deep resonance that, that is speaking to the young adults, which is a fabulous mass market for the sale of my book. There are now these book clubs. There's 1,700 throughout the country that you can market to for recommending this book to be bought, and parents and kids and adults and young adults book clubs. Um, so it's it's really a matter of it's difficult to sell A lot of books. And there is a recipe sometimes to the bestsellers. I mean, the people who get, you know, tons and tons of money in the front. Um, Sometimes they pre-sell books to Costco and, you know, to publishers making sure they're going to get their money back. Um, You know, in terms of what we can do as authors to help promote the book is, you know, obviously I'm in a pretty good position. This is where my recipe comes in and really helps me because I'm accustomed to speaking and um, I know my material pretty well. The book events and when I speak, those go really well and that sells, you know, 100 books every time you go somewhere. Um, You know, there's obviously the online... You know, I have a website guy who, who you know, helps me with my Twitter and hashtags all the stuff and all the podcasts I do and all the interviews I do get get shot out. You know, social media, even for the difference between my last book and this book, is just immense. Um, you know, I did an audio. I, I narrated my own book here. I spent three days in the studio for Random House reading my book, cool. which was quite an experience. So there's the sales of the audio, and then there's the sales of the Kindle, and then there's the sales of the hardback. And the U.K. bought the rights to the book. So in the U.K., it came out in Kindle um, when my book came out, and then it will come out in a different cover, you know, and everything, hard jacket. And then there's the possibility of foreign sales. So, you know, Italy, France, Germany, those are all separate book deals that have nothing to do with Random House. And then there's potential for, um, we're talking about a movie and a, uh, or a limited television series. So when you get to a certain level with a book, you know, it's just like, you know, acting, because I live here in Hollywood. There is the opportunity for the sky is the limit. But let's not kid ourselves. Most people write because they, they can't not write. And they hope to be able to live off of the money they make.
0: What did that lady, your friend, who told you you can't start a book with the car chapter say when you went back and said Random House is going to give me six figures for that chapter? (laughs) Well, she, um,
3: you know, you could say things about people. She knew the reputation of the editor who bought this book. I didn't say a word. I told her who bought it, and it wasn't until a few weeks later that she just made a joke. I mean look, I I try and be a good kind person and I know it doesn't matter. I mean, you can imagine what I was thinking. Hey, guess what, lady? But I didn't. Yeah. And she at some point made a joke and said, "Well, I guess you shouldn't listen to me. I guess I don't know what I'm talking about." And I thought, "That's not even funny." You know, she was my mentor. Yeah. It was like, "But I think I think it's a good story to tell young young authors too because you are going to come across it it's like a stupid scene from a stupid movie but but it's true she told me and it really messed with my head like oh wow yeah. like how could i be so stupid and dumb to open a, a a story that starts in a car with in a car i mean i just so um it just goes to show i mean obviously people give us advice and we should listen but when you get something as specific as that, and she must have really felt that, and it just goes to show what she didn't know. So I would override her advice and say, you go with your gut. If, that, mm-hmm. if your story starts in a car or on an airplane or in a bathtub, that's where it starts. And until an editor or, you know, a renowned agent says, maybe we should rethink how we start this, I think you go with your gut. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, um, finally, Liz, uh, usually Keisha finishes her podcast by asking um, what your writing superpower is, and we'll sort of mix that up a little bit. Um, You have experience as a life advice expert. Um, Would you say there's one specific uh, superpower, if you will, that you pull from that arena that goes into your writing, maybe specifically this book?
3: Yes, I would unequivocally say my memory. Okay. Is my
0: superpower. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. We truly enjoy talking to you. I know I can say that I read that book um, I, on my Kindle and, and on, my, on my iPad at night, and I would you know, be excited to like get in the bed and go Me read too. it at night and return to the narrative. And that's a so that's much. a good feeling when you're yeah. reading a book.
3: Well, I would be more than happy to to be a guest whenever you guys want me. I I feel very strongly about helping young people and aspiring writers to find themselves their best path. So just know that I'm open to that.
0: Well, we will take you up on that offer. Um, Sarah's going to be doing several more shows (laughs) this season, so she might have you back on. And all the information you gave here was great, and I encourage people... To pick up Look at You Now and read it, study it, go back to this uh, podcast and listen to Liz's advice because it, it's really, really a good book and over the last year I've had the opportunity to read some memoirs and others and there are some that stick with me and I know this is going to be one of those that I keep going back to in terms of just studying craft um, and just a, a remembering moments in the narrative that kind of will stick to you um, you know, for the rest of the for the rest of my life, but <laughs> thank I, I think it has that potential for me. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so me much. Too. Really, uh, really appreciate it.
3: And Sarah, yes, when when it's time, I want you to you know get a hold of me at lizpriar dot com, and I want to help you in any way I can.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I definitely will take advantage of that.
3: Yeah, please. Anytime. Um it comes in all day long. I answer everything that comes. Sometimes it takes me a little while, but I do, but I get to it. So know that you can get to me that way and anybody who wants, you know, life advice or book advice, I'm I'm all over helping the younger generation.
2: There you have it, and uh, we are at the end of the first episode of season 2. I really enjoyed starting the season off with Liz Um uh, This, her interview really confirms that Behind the Pros is an MFA in an MP3. So tell all your friends about it if they're trying to be writers or are writers and want to learn more about how their colleagues and peers are making it work out here in the publishing world. Thanks for rocking with me. Um, stay with me because we are going to keep you informed um, we're going to help you learn but you can only do that if you listen learn and write
1: okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry Ooh, a book club computer solitaire huh oh